Good morning. Great to see all of you again. A pleasure to fill in for your pastor, and I'm honored to do that today with you. Uh, if you would turn t- with me to Genesis chapter 1, please. Genesis chapter 1, first book of the Bible, not hard to find. Heavenly Father, we're thankful to consider your word now today, and we do pray that uh, you would bring encouragement and instruction to our hearts and minds here today, Lord. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I've spoken to you in times past about the trustworthiness of the Bible. In one of those presentations I did here a few years ago, I laid out a broad case for the reliability of the Bible, discussing several different lines of evidence for its trustworthiness. Uh, I talked about fulfilled prophecies, archaeological discoveries, the Dead Sea Scrolls, ancient extra-biblical historical writings that confirm events in the Bible. This morning, I'd like to revisit the reliability of the Bible by taking a deeper look at one of the pools of evidence that I only briefly discussed in that previous presentation. I'm talking about the Bible's scientific accuracy and foresight. This morning, I'd like for us to look at some passages in the Bible where the biblical writers revealed amazing facts about the earth and the universe long before their discovery by scientists, oftentimes by three or four thousand years. This is just astounding when you consider the fact that these men wrote the books of the Bible thousands of years before the telescope was invented, uh, microscopes and satellites and deep diving submarines and all of the other technology that's allowed mankind to finally verify that these revelations in the scriptures were correct. Well, we believe this is compelling evidence that the biblical writers truly did have encounters with God wherein he revealed himself to them, but also revealed insights about creation that were not known at the time. So I'd like for us to examine some of these ancient revelations in the Bible. I think you'll find them to be quite fascinating. And I think by the end of our time together here this morning, you'll see that the Bible is even more trustworthy, more incredible, perhaps, than you had even previously thought it to be. So let's start by considering what the Bible had to say about the start of the universe. The start of the universe, notice with me, if you would, there in your Bibles, the very first verse There in Genesis chapter one, verse one, Moses says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible makes it clear here and in other verses that the universe had a beginning. Well, this went against the prevailing views in Moses' day, around 1500 BC. Most of the ancient world, including the Egyptians at the time of Moses, believed that the universe was eternal, 
uncreated, just there. Now, this isn't to suggest that the ancients didn't believe in gods. They certainly did, many of them. But they believed that their deities operated in a space-time-matter universe that already existed. And up until the 20th century, the widely accepted, universally entrenched view in scientific circles was that the ancients were right about the universe. The universe is just there. It's always been there. It had no beginning, they assured us. Well, that view that the universe has just always been around has fallen on very hard times. In fact, scientific evidence discovered in the 20th century demolished this view. The background radiation echo, the second law of thermodynamics, and the motion of the galaxies have led astronomers now to conclude that the universe actually had a beginning, just like the Bible said. 3,500 years ago, when Moses penned the words we have here before us in Genesis chapter 1. Arnold Penzias, who was awarded a Nobel Prize for discovering some of the evidence that the universe had a beginning, agrees that the scientific data lines right up with the Bible. In an interview in New York Times newspaper, he said, the best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. So, score one for the Bible right there in the very first verse. All right, while we're talking about the universe, let's consider a second topic the Bible spoke with amazing accuracy and foresight about, and that is the size of the universe. The size of the universe. Turn with me, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 31. A little past halfway through your Bible. Jeremiah chapter 31. We'll look at verse 37. Jeremiah records God as saying this in verse 37. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. God implies here in this verse that humans will never be able to measure the size of the universe or successfully search out the inner foundations or core of the earth. If so, he says, I will cast off the Jewish people, something we are assured elsewhere in Scripture God will never do. For example, 
Psalm 94 verse 14 says, for the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. So God's never going to forsake his people and humans will never be able to measure the size of the universe, nor search out the foundations of the earth below the earth's crust. And indeed, the book of Jeremiah has held up like a solid rock now for more than 2,500 years. Every attempt by humans to drill through the earth's crust to the inner core of the earth has ended in failure. Drilling past the crust requires drilling through a minimum of five miles of solid rock. And that's if you start the drilling on the bottom of the ocean floor where the earth's crust is thinner. If you start drilling on one of the continents, you're looking at having to drill down through about 25 miles of rock. No easy task. The deeper you go, the hotter it gets and the more atmospheric pressure you have, which would reach about 4 million pounds per square foot near the earth's mantle your drill bit's gonna be toast as it gets closer and closer. So we just don't have the capability to explore the inner foundations of the earth and we have not had much better success measuring the universe. Every attempt to measure the length of the universe leaves astronomers scratching their heads. Oh, in in the last 20 years, astronomers have made some progress measuring different parts of the universe. Uh, According to their latest findings, they tell us that the observable universe is about 93 billion light years in length. But they've concluded that the whole universe is at least 250 times larger than the observable universe, maybe even infinite, they say. They have no way of knowing really how much larger the universe is out past where they can't see. But I can assure you of this, they will never be able to successfully measure the universe and God will never forsake the Jewish people. One of the reasons humans will not be able to accurately measure the length of the universe is because it is expanding at an enormous rate, even now as we sit here in church. And this leads me to a third fact the biblical writers got right, and that is the stretching out of the universe. The stretching out of the universe. Turn with me, if you would, back to the left a bit in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 40. I'm not going to have you to turn to every verse today, but I feel like a few would be good to see with your own eyes. Isaiah chapter 40. We'll look at a verse here momentarily. But up until the 20th century, scientists believed that the universe was static. Uh, That is to say that it was not expanding. Well, all of that changed in the 20th century when an American astronomer by the name of Edwin Hubble discovered compelling evidence that the universe was not static but was actually expanding at an enormous speed. And today, this is the consensus amongst astronomers that the universe is expanding or stretching out. But you know, the Bible actually mentioned this 
long before Edwin Hubble was even born. Notice there in verse 22, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah speaks of God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Again, God stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. When you're camping, you lay out your tent and you just begin throwing out all the different sides of the tent. You're expanding the whole thing in different directions. That's the picture he uses here. To say God's doing that with the universe. He's stretching it out. The book of Job also talks about this in Job 9 verse 8 where it says that God stretches out the heavens. So these verses and a couple of others in the Bible indicate that the universe has expanded since the time of its creation. Well, friends, Isaiah wrote this book, the book of Isaiah, 2,700 years ago. The book of Job about 4,000 years ago. Question for you, how could Isaiah and Job have known the universe was expanding? There were no telescopes back then. No satellites, no observatories. Galileo was the first person to point a telescope to the stars, but that didn't happen until 1608. And when one looks up at the heavens from here on earth, the universe does not appear to be expanding. And yet Isaiah in the book of Job declared that God stretches out the heavens. Amazing. Now, the skeptic says, hold, hold on a second, Charlie. <laughs> These kinds of details were probably just added, just inserted into the Bible after the discoveries were made. You know, to make it look like the Bible said these kinds of things so long ago. Some critics of the Bible today propose this as a solution to these kinds of statements in the Bible. Well, in response to this objection, we know these verses were not inserted into the Bible after the discoveries because we have ancient manuscript copies of the Bible and even published and printed copies of the Bible that predate every one of these modern discoveries. In fact, right now, there on the screen for you is a photograph of an ancient scroll of the book of Isaiah. It was one of the Dead Sea Scrolls unearthed 70 years ago in Israel. It dates back to 100 years or so before Jesus' birth. And the scroll in that photograph is opened to Isaiah chapter 40 and chapter 40 verse 22, the verse we just looked at, says the same thing that our Bibles say today that God stretches out the heavens, thus proving there was nothing added after the 20th century discovery. And other ancient scrolls confirm the same thing when it comes to other statements in the Bible. Now, while we're still on the topic of the cosmos, there's a fourth area the biblical writers beat modern scientists to the truth. This one has to do with the stars, the stars. Before the invention of the telescope, people believed that the stars could be counted and numbered. In fact, people were so confident of this, they drew up star charts like this one with all of the stars named and numbered. The Greek astronomer 
and mathematician Hipparchus, who lived about a century before Jesus was born, claimed that there were 1,026 stars in the universe. Well, 200 years later, the astronomer and mathematician Ptolemy came along and he stated that there were actually a few more. The number went up to 1,056 at 30. Now, that was the prevailing view for quite a while until the German astronomer Johannes Kepler came along about 1,500 years later and the number went down to 1,005 stars. Well, friends, all of these counts went out the window when the telescope was finally invented. When Galileo, a devout Christian, pointed his telescope to the heavens in 1608, he discovered these previous counts were way off and that the Bible was actually right. What had the Bible said regarding the matter? Well, in Jeremiah 33, verse 22, God declared the host of heaven, that's a way of referring to the stars in the Old Testament, the host of heaven cannot be numbered nor the sand of the sea measured. God says here that the stars cannot be numbered. In fact, trying to do so would be about as futile as trying to count the grains of sand floating around in the sea. Obviously an impossible task. Now, Jeremiah wrote that more than 2,000 years before Galileo made his discovery. Today, with the help of powerful telescopes, astronomers estimate that the universe contains somewhere between 100 billion and a trillion, not stars, galaxies, containing anywhere between 100 billion and 10 trillion stars each. Far too many stars for us to ever count. Surely the host of heaven cannot be numbered just as Jeremiah said here in chapter 33. So just incredible. Uh, What else did the Bible get right? Well, if you're taking notes, jot it down. Number five, facts about the sun. Facts about the sun. In ancient Egypt, the sun was worshiped as a deity named Re, whom the people thought majestically sailed across the sky every day in his fiery boat on his daily visits to the upper and lower worlds. Evidence of sun worship has been found in a variety of places now in the ancient world. Uh, Assyria, Babylon, different parts of Um, Mexico and Central America, uh, Asia and Europe. But after an encounter with God, Moses, who was born and raised in Egypt, even educated in their schools, goes against the prevailing view of the day and declares in the opening chapter of Genesis that the sun was actually a creation of God that was made to simply provide earth with light and to help measure the passing of time. And of course, with the invention of the telescope much later in history, scientists were able to prove to people that the sun is not a deity riding around the sky in a fiery boat, but an enormous star millions of miles away from planet Earth. But 400 years after Moses died, While much of the ancient world was still worshiping the sun as a deity, David wrote this about the sun in Psalm 19, verse 6. He said, its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. 
Now, David wrote that about 3,000 years ago, but for years, critics of the Bible laughed at this verse, thinking that David had made an heir, thinking that he had espoused a geocentric view, the view that the sun moves around the earth. The critics laughed at that. They said, no, no, David, the sun doesn't go anywhere. It's stationary. It's the earth that moves around the sun. But with the advent of powerful telescopes, we've discovered that the sun actually does move. It's traveling about 52,000 miles per hour on a circuit through the heavens as it makes its way around the center of the Milky Way galaxy, all in perfect harmony with what David said here in Psalm 19.6 when he declared the sun to be on a circuit from one end of the heavens to the other. Not only did the biblical writers speak correctly about the universe and the stars, the sun, they spoke with amazing accuracy and foresight about the shape of the earth. The shape of the earth, the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, and Chinese are all on the historical record for having believed and taught that the earth was flat. For a long time, people thought the earth was flat shaped like a disc surrounded by a river of water that they called Oceanus. It was believed that anyone foolish enough to sail through the pillars of Hercules, now known as the Strait of Gibraltar, would fall off the earth into nothingness. And some critics of the Bible today say that the Bible agreed with some of these ancient flat earth views. Critics of the scriptures point to Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, where John speaks of the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Well, critics read that, and then they like to claim that the Bible espouses a flat, four-cornered earth. Well, they are quite mistaken. The critics overlooked the fact that John was simply using a well-known figure of speech to describe the extremities in the, of the land in the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west, and we still use this exact same figure of speech today, 2,000 years later. The... <clears throat> Excuse me, the Bible actually indicates in more than one place that the earth is a round sphere. Isaiah, who lived during a period when Persian astronomers were convinced the earth was flat and even centuries before the Greeks finally figured out that the earth was round, wrote this in Isaiah 40, verse 22. He said that God sits above the circle of the earth. That word circle in the Hebrew is the word chug or chug, which indicates something spherical, rounded, or arched. Now, Isaiah wrote that about 700 BC. And more than a thousand years before Isaiah declared those words, the book of Job told us that God has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Well, that's fascinating. Let me break it down for you what he just said. Job says that God has drawn a circle on the surface of the waters, a reference to the oceans, at the boundary of light 
and darkness. This boundary between light and darkness is where evening and morning occur. Notice that the boundary is not a square or a triangle. It's a circle. Why is that? Well, because the earth is round. So that's just incredible accuracy and foresight there in the book of Job. Well, what about the suspension of the earth? The suspension of the earth. Ancient Hindus believed the earth rested on the backs of elephants who stood on the back of a turtle. Something has to hold the earth up, people used to reason. Well, what did the Bible say? Well, again, in one of the oldest books in the Bible, Job said in Job 26, verse 7, that God stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. No turtles, no elephants, just completely unattached there in open space. Well, of course, we now have pictures of the earth taken from space that show this is indeed the case. But how did Job, how in the world did Job know this 4,000 years ago before the invention of telescopes and satellites? His declaration here is just astounding. All right, let's consider a couple more. This next one has to do with the source of water. The source of water. Several thousand years ago, the ancients observed enormous rivers flowing out into the ocean, but they could not figure out why the oceans never overflowed or why the ocean uh, sea levels never rose. The source of rainwater was a complete mystery to people back then. Well, it wasn't until Leonardo da Vinci and European scientists Pierre Perrault and Edma Marriott in the 17th century that the Earth's water cycle began to be understood in an accurate and detailed way. The observations of these three scientists and a couple of others finally led to the understanding that rain clouds develop from evaporation of ocean water followed by atmospheric transportation and then precipitation. So scientists finally began to figure these things out about three, four, five hundred years ago. But had they read the writings of Solomon, scientists might have figured this out much sooner. Nearly 3,000 years before the hydrological cycle or the water cycle was discovered, Solomon wrote this in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 7. He said, All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, the sea, there they flow again. This is just astonishing. Solomon understood that the sea is actually the source of river water coming down from the mountains. He states that the sea is the place from which the rivers flow and that there they will flow again, he says. But check this out. The book of Job explains the process in more detail even long before Solomon. Job chapter 36 verse 27 and 28 says that God draws up water. Speaking of evaporation, he draws up water which distill as rain from the mist which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly 
on man. So Job discusses this and Amos discusses this as well about 2,700 years ago in the book of Amos. Chapter nine, verse six, notice what he says. He says that God calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Remarkable. How in the world did Amos, Job, and Solomon know that the source of rainwater is actually oceanic evaporation? When we reflect upon the fact that scientists didn't discover this to be the case until 3,000 years later, these biblical passages are truly incredible. While we're talking about water, let's discuss another revelation the Bible made long before it was discovered to be true. I'm talking about sea springs. Sea springs. I was raised here in Southern California. I was born in Glendora, uh, and then we moved down to Oceanside when I was seven. And I grew up pretty close to the beach for uh, all the rest of those years of my childhood. And I, I love the beach. I started out bodyboarding and then took up surfing in high school. I got a job at a surf shop in Carlsbad uh, when I was going through college. And then I got a job at a surfing magazine in Laguna Beach. Uh, for several years before I went into full-time pastoral ministry. So I love the ocean, been close to it, feel very comfortable uh, in the ocean. But as comfortable as I am around the beach, I am not really that comfortable going out into its deep, deeper parts. Uh, sharks, I, I don't like sharks. Does anyone here like sharks? I mean, <laughs> they're incredible creatures. I, it's just their teeth, I guess, that I don't like. <laughs> but uh, God covered this planet. He covered 70% of the planet with water that is incredibly deep, nearly seven miles straight down in some places. Much of the ocean floor away from the shoreline lies in total darkness. Water pressure makes exploring most of the ocean floor an impossible task apart from modern research submarines. So surely none of the biblical writers ever explored the deep ocean floor. And yet, some 4,000 years ago, the book of Job said that there were underwater springs on the floor of the ocean. In Job chapter 38, verse 16, God asked Job this question. He said, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Job, have you ever explored the bottom of the ocean where the deep recesses are, the canyons deep down there in the ocean? Have you ever entered into the springs of the sea. Now, the obvious answer, the humbling answer for Job was no. Job had never explored the bottom of the ocean, nor had any other human. The technology was not around to do so. God asked Job this question and some others to help Job realize that he has a very limited perspective on world affairs, including the events surrounding his own life. So the book of Job mentions the springs of the sea. Make note of that. But the book of Genesis speaks of them as well. In Genesis chapter seven, verse 11, when Moses describes what brought on the great flood, Noah's flood, he speaks of the fact that fountains of the great deep 
fountains were broken up in the ocean. So it wasn't just 40 days of rain which fell, which critics of the Bible like to point out would never produce enough water to cover high hills and mountains. Well, they overlooked the fact that God doesn't say it was just 40 days of rain. The springs of the sea, the fountains of the great deep were broken up and they let in a tremendous amount of additional water that would cause flooding. But hold on, Job and Moses say that there are springs in the sea? Fountains at the bottom of the ocean? Water coming up from underneath the ocean floor? People back in Job and Moses' day might have thought, those guys are crazy. How do they know what's going on at the bottom of the ocean? There were no aqualungs back then. There were no submarines back then. Well, we've come to understand that Moses and Job had inside information from the one who created the planet and who knows exactly what's going on at the bottom of the ocean. And now, more than 3,000 years after the Bible spoke of these deep sea fountains, we finally discovered that the Bible was right all along. With the help of a deep diving research submarine built to withstand the three tons per square inch pressure at the ocean floor, deep sea springs and fountains on the ocean floors were finally observed by humans for the first time in the Atlantic Ocean in 1973. The underwater springs spew out boiling hot mineral-laden water from chimneys that are up to 15 feet tall top mounds of minerals up to 60 feet high isn't that just fascinating fountains and springs in the sea just like the bible said friends you're free to conclude that the biblical writers just took wild guesses about these matters so long ago but it would be far wiser to conclude that the reason these men got all these details right And several more was because men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They weren't taking wild guesses. No, the God who knows all there is to know about the universe and the earth he created, he superintended, he came alongside the writing of the Bible to make sure that what these men penned accurately reflected the way things really are. And because that is the case, you can read the Bible with the highest degree of confidence. But friends, this book is not primarily about the stars and the solar system and the shape of the earth. It speaks a bit about these things in passing, but the primary message in this book is about mankind's Savior, Jesus For, you see, humans have been separated from a relationship with God because of our sins. Without a remedy to that situation, the Bible says we would all face the righteous judgment of a holy God for our sins and end up in hell. Thankfully, though, that doesn't have to happen because this same God who is holy and just and who hates sin is also full of also full, is also loving and merciful. 
He's loving and merciful. He loves you so much, in fact, that he determined he would pour out his judgment that you deserve, that I deserve for my sins, for your sins on himself. How awesome is that? That's what was happening when Jesus died on that cruel wooden Roman cross. He was receiving the punishment that you deserved for your sins, the Bible says, so that you could then be forgiven of all your sins, escape eternity in hell, and enjoy everlasting life in God's kingdom. Jesus rose from the grave three days later, and now he's offering all humanity this incredible free gift, peace with God the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life in his kingdom. How can you lay hold of that gift? How can you be saved? Well, I'll let God answer that. In Isaiah 45, verse 22, God says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. That's all that God asks. He's not asking you to clean up your life or go through 12 steps, or join a church, or start, you know, serving. No, he just says, turn to me and be saved. In other words, you're turning to him, and you're saying, God, I, I need you. I'm placing my confidence in you to save me, and I'm trusting in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. If you'll do that, the Bible says you will be saved. So I encourage you to do that today if you need to. For the rest of you who've already done that, You've already trusted in Christ. May I encourage you this week to draw near to him and to read this book often, knowing, confident that this Bible truly is the very word of God as it claims to be. Amen? Amen. Amen. Quickly want to let you know that we have three new DVDs out since the last time I taught here on a Sunday morning. We've got one on archaeological evidence for the Bible, one that addresses the thorny issue of evil and suffering. Why does God allow that if he's a loving God? And then a new one addressing critics' uh, objections to the Bible's teaching on homosexuality, if you're interested in any of those. If you're interested in sharing any of the kind of information we talked about today, I cover the, the kinds of things we talked about today in this book out there. Uh, it's called Scrolls and Stones. We've got plenty of copies out there. It's just $10. Uh, and then this last resource I'll quickly highlight is this tiny USB drive. If you stop by my resource table, you'll see we've got, uh, we've got two tables full of DVDs. There's 31 DVDs out there now. But with the help of technology, we've been able to take all of the DVDs and put them onto a tiny USB flash drive the size of a AA battery. You can stick that right into the USB port on your television and pull up any of our videos right there on your TV. Uh, You can stick it into the USB port on your computer and watch any of them there or even transfer them through your computer and put them right onto your iPad, tablet, or smartphone, whatever you use nowadays to watch videos. So if you'd like to get some further equipping in contending for the faith and answering atheists and skeptics, we have some resources out there that can help you do that. So let me go ahead and close in prayer and then the worship team is gonna lead us in a final song. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Uh, We're thankful for these amazing 
revelations in the scriptures that have now been verified by scientific discoveries thousands of years later. It's just incredible, Lord, and a reminder that the Bible truly is a trustworthy revelation of who you are, God. And God, maybe there's a person here today who needs to look to you for salvation, a person who needs to place their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin. God, we pray that you would help them to do that today and uh, to call upon your name even as we uh, close out the service here in this last song. God, draw them near to yourself, we ask. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.